0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: All right. Good evening, everybody. Audio ran a little bit long. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. Got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off here in just a few moments uh, with another great round of Coach's Corner and uh, got a couple of great guys that to be on the show tonight and I'll introduce those guys in just a moment. And a little bit later on, I'm very excited to have my very special guest on this evening. Uh, he's uh, been a golf announcer for many, many years, uh, the, known as The Voice. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. Peter Kessler. Uh, who, who you may all recall uh, was one of the original, if not the first, uh, hosts uh, on the Golf Channel when it first made its debut uh, some years ago. And uh, he's going to be joining me on the second half of the show, so I'm very excited about uh, having him on the, on the program tonight. And I just want to take a quick uh, note to uh, let everybody know that uh, we are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on the blogtalkradio.com network. And as always, the easiest way to find us is to go to blogtalkradio.com and up in the search key, just type Golf Talk Live, or you can just uh, do a forward, forward slash excuse me, and add Golf Talk Live on the end to that link, and that'll take you to the uh, live broadcast every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central or 7 to 9 for those of you on the East Coast. Um, but for some reason, if you can't join us live, not to worry, you can just visit that link and just scroll down to the On Demand section. Of course, all of the uh, live broadcasts are auto-recorded, so you can check those out uh, when it's convenient for you, or you can also go to iTunes.com or Stitcher.com, and under the podcast section, uh, again, you can just type in Golf Talk Live and that will take you there as well. Always look forward to speaking with my guests. And if you want to call in and talk to my guests at any time during our Thursday Night Live broadcast, you're welcome to do so. The number to call is area code 646 716 4667. Or you can easily uh, email me any ca- questions or comments about the show to ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. If you're somebody in the golf industry, maybe you're a teacher professional or a golf coach, uh, uh, or maybe you're an entrepreneur or or somebody that maybe has written a great golf book that you want to share with the audience, that you think you've got some great tips uh, uh, in the book that uh, you'd like to share, uh, by all means, you can also reach out to me at that email. And again, it's ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. And as always, uh, each and every week, I update uh, on social media, uh, Facebook page, you can go on to excuse me you can go on to my personal page uh, or you can also go to uh, facebook.com/golf talk live blog and the show of course is updated every week uh, there on social media uh, also on twitter my twitter handle is ted and buck ceo ceo of capital letters and again thank you for all the recent followers there uh, you can also get updates on the show there and also on my personal page on linkedin.com that's linkedin.com you can just uh, type in ted odorico and that will bring you there as well. Uh, as I said, have got a great show tonight. Uh, two great gentlemen are uh, going to be joining me on here on the Coach's Corner panel. Let me just tell you a little bit about each of them. Uh, John Hughes, he's a PJ Master Professional and the Vice President of the North Florida PJ Section, as well as the 2013 PJ of America Horton Smith Award recipient, and he's also a Top 30 instructor. Uh, with Golf Tips magazine. also joining up the panel is uh, Peter Agazarian. He's been on the show many, many times as well. He's a PJ and TPI teach professional uh, at the Traconic uh, Golf Club, and he's also the head men's coach uh, golf coach, excuse me, with the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. He's also the founder of Northeast Golf Performance. And a member of the proponent group, um, and I would say, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner. But I'm going to say it just to you, Peter, because uh, John's not quite on board yet, so we'll wait for him to come on. But Peter, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Ted. Great to be here.
1: All right, we're going to before we we start. Um, you were telling me uh, some exciting news, so if if you're ready to share that, if not, we'll we'll jump into something else. But if you'd like to share that with the audience, uh, kind of give them a sneak peek and some things that you've been uh, working on and getting ready, obviously for for next year. Um, if you want to share that, by all means, go to while we went for John.
2: Yeah, of course. It just wrapped up a, a fabulous golf season at Taconic Golf Club. Um, taking a little break for some family time right now, but mainly, um, getting ready to, uh, kind of reveal the renovated, uh, indoor facility, uh, outside Springfield, uh, just replacing some turf netting, um, really upgrading just the overall facility, and also going to be opening a brand-new performance facility, studio in North Adams, Massachusetts. Um, it's a repurposed mill space. Um, it's The floor just got refinished. Um, everything is really progressing nicely. Very high-end turf, uh, TrackMan hitting bay, uh, pretty large putting green, uh, nice sin lawn uh, turf. That's really excited about it. That's going to be a year-round facility. Um, just to complement my work at Taconic during the season and also uh, in the off-season, uh, we just sold out our junior elite program, so that's full with a waiting list already. Uh, we're still we're just about three weeks away from opening and starting that program, and uh, have just about a hundred people who have requested information for um, either North Adams or um, uh, Springfield area. So it's a pretty exciting time, and uh, just looking forward to getting getting back on. Fantastic.
1: And and Peter, when's the uh, when's the facility going to be completed? When do you have a a, a date at this point that it's going to yeah, be ready right now and, and open for business?
2: Yeah, we're going to have an open house uh for North Adams on uh, December 2nd from noon to 2. Um uh, in North Adams, I don't know if I said that, but and then in other in Wilbraham, which is outside Springfield, that's going to be on December 3rd also from Two at both are going to have some food, some some beverages, some music, and people can come sample the space, sample the technology. Uh, we'll have TrackMan uh, and KVS there as well as uh, a new fitness product called 3X Slide, which is uh, really the world's only 3D slide board. It's circular. A lot of the slide boards that you see now are very linear and just go back and forth. This actually right. allows you to to slide and and a train on a three-dimensional plane. So pretty excited about oh, wow. that. Oh wow, very there. Yeah, I'll
1: bet. Very exciting. Um and and congratulations on on uh on all of that and you know, keep us posted yeah, as well that. as as yeah. you know, when everything gets uh, gets launched, I'll be more than happy to to spread the word I'm all about, you know, I'm all about newness. I mean, you know, I like it when um, you know people within the industry, fellow professionals not are always engaging and doing something new and exciting, and I think it 's great that we share and and um, and let you know other not only other professionals but obviously um, the folks out there that are going to get an opportunity to to attend the facility and and uh, get in there and, and take advantage of some of the great technology and of course some of the great instruction uh, so yeah. uh, i 'm looking forward to having.
2: Yeah. I'm looking forward to having some of our, you know, my, my fellow professionals in the area there as well for, you know, informal, informal collaborative time, you know, maybe have a couple, a couple beverages, you know, hit some balls together, talk about some things, and then potentially learn in a more informal setting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be really fun. Um, just kind of set dates, show up if you can, uh, you know, bring your clubs you know, let's, let's chat, right. Let's, let's, let's learn from each other.
1: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great way really to introduce it there. It, it's a, sort of a low pressure, uh, great way to, to get people involved in something, you know, uh, a lot of folks, especially new, new uh, golfers to the industry uh, or, or to the game, um, sometimes can be very intimidated. And I like the fact that, you know, you're kind of keeping low key, you know, bring your, your sticks, come on out and, and have a great time. And in, it's in sort of a relaxed environment. Um, but if they really want to, you know, step up their game, there's that there for them as well. But, you know, again, I like that sort of a low pressure uh, or almost really no pressure, just come on out and, and take advantage of some of the great uh, technology and that that we have at the facility. So that's uh,
0: yeah. uh,
1: kudos to you yeah, and, and, and the rest of them. Um, Peter, while we just have a few more minutes here, I'm I, you know, I apologize. I guess John is, is uh, probably on his way home from the golf course or maybe in a, a late <laughs> lesson, as I said many, many times. And that's a good thing. That's a good. We're not going to complain. So you and I may have to voice the uh, the coach's corner tonight ourselves, but um, that's great. I have we no can, no, yeah, no worries about that. that. Yeah, listen. Yeah, we can carry this next hour quite easily. I could probably <laughs> do it myself if I had to, but and I've had to do it a few times. Um, but what I want to ask you before we get into some of the questions is: is this? Uh, of course, as I mentioned in the opening uh, monologue, is is you are this year? Of course, you took on the head. Uh, men's golf coach position with the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. So how has it Mm -hmm. been so far? Give us kind of an update on what's been going on and and, uh, as as you're sort of getting your feet wet, if you will, in that new position.
2: Yeah, I feel as though it was a very successful fall season. Um, You know, from being hired basically on August 1st, we started our season uh, August 28th or 28th. Um, And I just really took the time to get to know um, the the student athletes that were left, you know, remaining on the team and got to know them as people and how I can best motivate them and really just progress through the season and help them improve and get better and um just strictly helping them, you know, control their golf ball out in the golf course, whatever it might have been. Whatever their chosen technique, chosen shot they're hitting, you know, preferences and their motion it didn't matter. It was all about training them to control the golf ball. I mean, we had the full spectrum of our five player was a player that was a true freshman had really played um, some competitive golf in high school, but this was his really his first, you know, dive into playing 36 hole competition. And it was a great learning experience for him. And he, he progressed and got better as the season went on. We're, you know, he his our conference championship. He posted his two best back-to-back rounds of the year. So, you know, for him going into wow. the spring, there's a lot of there's more confidence there. You know, all the way to one of our graduating seniors who, you know, ha, was an, is an incredible athlete. Has a club speed, you know, a driver club speed of 122. Uh, he carries at 320. But it was great to see. It was on track man, but he had no idea where it was going off the tee or off really any, anything with speed. Um, right. So, you know, he was, he was shooting high score, a lot higher scores than he felt like he was frustrated, you know, and got to the end of the year. He was really controlling his golf ball. He was playing golf a lot better and he felt as though his scores were closer to where he felt like he should be. You know, and just to the point of, you know, the team overall, they for our conference championship compared to last year, they improved their two-day team score by 91 shots.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's phenomenal.
2: They they really came together as a team. They really supported each other. They were all just, in general, really good guys, really good kids that – you know, came together, got better, and it was just cool to be involved with and, you know, help guide the process. It was – so we're, you know, we're looking forward to a, you know, a little bit of a spring season here, you know, in the Northeast. We don't get a ton of time, and we need to be done with the season a week before finals uh, so they have time to study. Right. But we have gotten some great offers from um, some schools in Connecticut, uh, some schools in, you know, the capital region of New York, around Albany and that that area to go – compete and, and get better. And, you know, fortunately the, the biggest thing that I see is a a win and and for the kids is that a lot of the players that had left the team for whatever reason are wanting to come back, compete, be part of the team again. And I see that as the biggest, you know, upside is that the there's going to be more competition between the kids and the players. And it's going to be, really good moving forward. I'm pretty confident. So we're going through the, also just That's kind of fantastic. Going through the whole recruiting process and all of that right now as well. So.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, what's, what's interesting too is, you know, it, it, it's, it's a challenge really for both. It's a challenge for the kids They you know, they've, they're not maybe familiar with you and you're not familiar with them when you sort of first come into the position so you you've got to kind of you're, you know you've got to kind of work your personalities together and and kind of mesh uh literally as a team not just the players but also as the coach as well um because mm-hmm. sometimes you know th- there's going to be differences in in uh, coaching styles from one person to another uh and also players uh respond differently to to different stimuli so how was that transition when you first uh, came on board? How was that? Was it a, a pretty easy fit or was there sort of some massaging that had to happen along the way?
2: Well, it was just, I just genuinely wanted to get to know them as people. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I sent out an email to the team, you know, in the beginning and, you know, any of the, I just wanted to get to know them, you know, it, it, it was getting to, you know, the golf is not secondary, but it, the golf is kind of the easy part for me to, to work with and to right. change the outcome and all of that. It was about finding a commonality. And, and truthfully, you know, it was about just open communication and them feeling like there was open communication. And there was a commonality between all of the student athletes and myself is that we all enjoy NFL football.
0: Right. So right.
2: We ended up there in practice, and you know, in between, you know, stations, or if we're on the golf course in between shots, the kids, the, the students, athletes like to keep it light, and we talked about football a lot. Mm. And there wow. would be times when I was out there, out there coaching them during an event, and you know, one of them's <laughs> playing well, and. And I, you know, I would just update them on whatever football game happened to be going on, and they relaxed enough to to keep their rounds going. And it was just, it was, it was more about me listening to them between themselves, yes, and then me helping them stay relaxed so they can perform. Because, you know, from a golf side, we know that tension is a killer to your right. golf performance. So the best thing I can do is not be out there you know, up there, you know a lot about the next shot they're going to hit when they know what the next shot they need to hit because I've already prepared them well enough to know. They need to be relaxed so that they go out and do it. So, yeah, that that's you know, that, the biggest thing.
1: Right, and that raises a really interesting point. You know, I think a lot of people have started to realize, even at, at the professional level, is, you know, you can't be focused – solely on golf um for four and a half hours straight nonstop. you have to have something to distract you a little bit now not so much that you get out of the game uh, or out of the round but at the same time you've got to be able to uh, in between shots give your 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 mental side a little bit of a break and you know it reminds me very quickly of a story that annika sorenstam Uh, I heard about when she won her first U.S. Open. Um, That was something that was, uh, you know, instilled in her mind was uh, by a fellow professional was to, you know, in between shots to to think about something else. And it just happened that uh, she had purchased her first home and and was getting ready to, to, um, you know, make some uh, adjustments there. So she actually was thinking about, you know, things that she wanted to buy and changes that she wanted to make to that home, uh, you know, to make Mm -hmm. it more, uh, comfortable for her in between shots. now, this is a major tournament. Uh, and what was really kind of interesting, uh, Peter, is that she went on to win that event. So it just mm-hmm. goes to show you that sometimes you need to take your mind away from the task at hand, just to give it a you know a breather, let you sort of decompress a little bit, and then when it when you step up to that next shot, then you re engage and you refocus until that mm. particular task has been accomplished. And then, uh, again, you take a little bit of a breather. So that, that's a great way to, to work with your students in that, uh, in that manner. And, and I'm sure um, as time goes on and, and you continue to work together as a team, um, that will become more and more paramount in, in their success uh, at whatever they do. But uh, is sometimes you just have to give yourself a little bit of a break and think about something else. Uh, other than the task at hand, so that's a that's a great uh, uh, acumen for you.
2: They, they right, enjoy. Uh, it. They, they, yeah, yeah,
1: go ahead. Sorry. No, no, sure. And and you know, just to add is, and, and the fact that it's it's something other than golf. I mean, you know, that you obviously all love uh, NFL football and gives them a, a chance to think about the team and and uh, you know vote a yay or nay on whichever team that they're you know backing. Oh but, yeah, um, I mean,
2: one of the kids. You know, we're in New England. Most of the kids are New Patriots fans. Right. And one of the kids was a Jets fan. Sure. So the the, right. the the good nature ribbing back and forth was funny enough. Right. You know, where I was, right. you know, I was driving the van, and I'm, yeah, I'm not saying anything. But I'm laughing because it's it's funny. I mean, yeah, they're just giving it back and forth to each other in a in a nice way, but it's, you know, right. It's it's fun. It, it was fun. It was yeah. a fun season. Yeah. It, Perfect.
1: All right, Peter, let's let's we got to move uh, we got to move forward. Un, un, unfortunately, yeah. as I said, uh, John John has been held up. So, let's uh, I have just got a few questions here and and we're going to talk a little sure. bit about in the life of a golf professional and it's not all necessarily going to be about golf, but I think one of the first questions that I, I like to ask uh in this sort of uh genre if you will is who were some of your earlier uh your early influencers in the game? Who who sort of really uh, influence, oh. um, not just your teaching, but just influencing your game, uh,
2: in whatever capacity you want. Good question. I mean, I can go pretty far back. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's a lot, you know, I started you golfing. Want. Well, I started golfing when I was five and my grandfather was the one that taught me how to play and, you know, him regripping, you know, cutting down a, his set of 85 Wilson blades in my kitchen, in my parents' kitchen and re-gripping them right there. That's probably my first golf memory, (laughs) you Mm. know, and, you know, just going from there. I mean, I've been really fortunate to be, you know, in the coaching aspect, I've been really fortunate to be exposed to extremely smart and talented golf professionals, as well as um, a lot of very very, very smart coaches from other sports and, and other walks of life. I mean, it's, I've been very fortunate. I mean, my, my, I have two high school coaches that are in their respective sports national hall of fame. I, you know, and then I was able to work as a very young professional. I was able to work for two professionals that are now in the Connecticut golf hall of fame. So I I was very fortunate to be in those positions and to be able to learn from them. So it uh, you know I would say my my wrestling coach was probably one of my biggest influences in how I coach my golfers. Uh, it's just a lot different arena, a lot different of level of intensity, but right. you're you're still working with a lot of the same principles, but also the the golf you know you know i've been a professional since i was 19 so i mean it's mm. you know i've just been able to have exposure to a lot of great great minds it's it's been fabulous
1: and and you know it's interesting that uh, what i take away from that is it wasn't just all about golf there were other influencers that were not necessarily in the golf profession that influenced mm-hmm. your career uh, to this point, and that's extremely important. Mm-hmm. You know, we we often talk about uh, juniors. You know, obviously we we love uh, when juniors want to come into the game, but we also want them to be active in other sports for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, to become a, a more well-rounded uh, athlete, of course, but um, to be exposed to other things because if it's if it's golf, golf, golf all the time, um, it can be very easy uh, for them to get burned out um, and to lose interest because they're not seeing and, and being exposed to other things. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be other sports; it can be other um you know something you know walking on a trail or hiking uh you know whatever yeah. case you mm-hmm. know out at boating you know fishing whatever the case you know whatever their their passions might be um so I, I like the fact that some of your earlier influences uh were not just golf professionals but uh other professionals and and maybe just uh mentors that that you look up to and respected in how they handled themselves uh, in, in their everyday life that, that somehow influenced you and, and uh, made you the person that you are today. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah.
2: The, and it's funny because um, I mean, wrestling and golf are so far apart, but I sure. have a better understanding of cause and effect in my, in my golf coaching because of my early background in, in wrestling. It's it's very yeah. strange. It's very relatable. It, it, it they're all of one's extremely physical, and the other one is <coughs> definitely not. But it's cause and effect. Yeah, the, and, and that's the basis of it.
1: Yeah, and they're very, as you said, very polar different too. I mean, you know, they're at the opposite spectrum. I mean, one's a physical sport, and 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 although I know golf, uh, you know, some might argue say it is uh, physical to a point. There are physical. Uh, requirements, of course, but you're not making physical contact, or at least you shouldn't be uh, out of the golf course unless <laughs> no. unless you're arguing with your, <laughs> someone in your foursome, but yeah, hopefully not. So so then how, let's again sort of take this uh, to the next yeah. step and just say, how is your teaching, do you think, then as a result of uh, early influences and and maybe just your own experiences, how has your teaching evolved uh, thus far over your career? Where do you see it in the beginning and how has it evolved and taken shape to, to where we are today.
2: It's evolved quite seriously. I mean, from, you know, being one of my, you know, one of my mentors early on, you know, saw a lot of potential in me and, and verbalized that to me, but he had a, he said something that was really has stuck with me. He said that you don't know what you don't know yet. And I, mm-hmm. I think about that a lot and it and it, you know from an early age you know you're sitting there at 19 years old and you're teaching an adult and you know you're you're changing the outcome you're you're helping but you know as an older professional now i i say okay i i definitely wouldn't offer that as a solution now um right but i th- i would i would say it's it's really i've always been a person that's focused more on the forward swing the from the transition through the ball, I will say that hmm. but it's it's really gone from being as a young professional, you know having information passed down you know through the years and believing that the you know the swing started with from the top down, whereas I completely and wholeheartedly believe now that the ground the swing starts from the ground up um whether anytime you're putting speed on the club in general, that would be the biggest difference. Technique, what technique wise. And back then I, I, I felt like I was talking way too much. Now I'm, you know, this is a different circumstance that we're talking a lot on, on, on the podcast right now, but during my right. sessions, I I'm listening a lot more than I'm talking. Yeah, and that and
1: that's a great point. Um, yeah, that's a great point, Peter, because that's really the way it should be. You know, we were given two ears and one mouth for a reason, and I think <laughs> one of the mistakes, uh, myself included, listen, I'll, I'll be the first to admit to it. You know, um, earlier on in in my life, um, you know, when you're young, let me let me just back it up a little bit. You know, you, you said you talked about when you were 19. You know, when I think back to when I was 19, 20 years old. Um, and I think, uh, it's probably more this way for, for boys than it is for girls. Um, but you know, there, there's a certain cockiness, there's a certain arrogance. You think, you know, it's like you say, you, you, you know what you know, and you, you don't, what you don't. And what's interesting when you're at that age, you're very eager to get out and, and sort of strike out in the world and, and make your own way. So you, you don't really have a lot of experience and you just sort of wing it a lot of times, and you can be very well trained, and you can receive some of the best education, but there's still an inherent ability, if you will, from somebody that age, uh, because you don't have a lot of experience yet, um, and and so I'm talking obviously life experiences, that it's very mm-hmm. difficult for you, um, as you pointed out, you you know you were teaching people that were older than you, um, that maybe at times might have looked at you and thought, you know, what's this kid trying to tell me that I know all that. And, and you know what I mean? Like there's, there's that sort of um, difference in age, but now that you're older and you've had some experiences along the way, I still get, that. and you know,
2: <laughs> you,
1: you, sure. Yeah. I mean, I do too. Listen, <laughs> and I'm going to be mid fifties next year, but, but no, you know but what I mean? mean?
2: There's a certain, Ted, you bring up a great right. point. And we've talked about this before on the podcast about, we had, we had the the you know, episode where we talked about, the, you know, the over 50 golfer. And my, my point was yes. the fact that that their past experiences were such a strength of theirs. You know, right. we're talking about their physical limitations, all of this stuff. And right. We mm-hmm. discussed that. And, you know, yep, just to, remember. to elaborate on your point, you're making right now, you're exactly right. You're keep going. Sorry.
1: Well, I had, you know, just, to, just to, to, bring this full circle i had a, a gentleman i worked with years ago um not in the golf industry but in a different industry and he said to me and i was in my 20s at the time and, and i was always a pretty you know pretty on the ball guy but you know i had that that sort of cocky arrogant uh a little bit uh, too like like the rest of us and you know he said to me he said i'm going to tell you something teddy said and he was probably close to 60 at the time he said people will not take you serious." until you get at least into your mid to late 30s, maybe even early 40s. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't listen to you, but because they don't feel or they, I guess, subconsciously know that you haven't had a lot of life experiences yet. So what you're telling them is what you've learned um, from somebody else, not through your own uh, experiences, uh, whether it be a textbook that's been written, or somebody else that's instilled their wisdom. And that doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means you haven't really gained enough life experience yet that some people may be apprehensive when you tell them something. Um, whereas if you say, well, you know, I did this or I used to do that. Uh, it gives them a little bit uh, easier to understand. Okay. Yeah. You know, this guy's experienced that too, or, you know, he has hit some bad shots uh, over time too. And here's what he's done to overcome that. So now I'm going to take a little, him a little bit more serious. Um, and I think this is something to go to your point about listening more. Now is something that we all need to do regardless of what profession, whether you're in the golf profession or you're in another profession, you need to listen more to your students, Mm -hmm. um, to their concerns, what they have to say and what's of interest to them. It doesn't matter what's of interest to you. It's what's of interest to them. Where do they want to improve? What's important to them? Because if you try to teach them something that's, away from what they're telling you, they're going to get very frustrated. Um, They're going to recognize very early on that you're not listening to them and they're going to just shut down. And then you have, you know, trying to get through that wall. is like chiseling through concrete. It's not an easy
2: task. Um, And then Ted, from that, on that same point, you have to find, you have to listen in order to understand, you know, I, I hear, I, I see and talk to a lot of professionals that are willing to listen but they're strictly listening to respond. They're looking to jump on the first point where they see they can make a connection. They're, they're jumping, they're jumping on the first. And then, but let the people, let people talk, let people go, let people find. And a lot of times, especially now, they're going to reveal their own contextual understanding of what they're attempting to execute on their own. They're going to discover this. This is just what I've seen. They're going to, they're going to lead themselves. And then as you're listening, if you feel like they're getting to a constructive point, you can guide them towards where they're going. And they don't even know they're going there. And a lot of times they'll say to you know, they'll say to me, it was like, you really haven't talked a whole lot. I was like, but look where your ball's going yes and they have a they have more context at that point what they whatever they're relating to you know and i always say to people afterward you know, i said this is going to be a lasting change for you because you're resourcing something that you have been doing for as long or longer that is has nothing to do with golf and whether it's yeah. sewing baseball, whatever it is, there, you have to have an item that you can relate to that you've been doing the same amount of time or longer in order to really change the outcome of whatever they're doing. It, that, and that's where they end up guiding. They end up really searching and discovering that from themselves strictly because they're not having to listen to me talk.
1: Right. It's, it's pretty well, amazing. And, yeah, let me just add this very quickly, and then, and then I've got another uh, question that I want to ask you.
2: Sure.
1: You know, one of the things that I think sometimes can be detrimental to the golf industry, and particularly golf instruction, is we have to remember that everybody, and I mean everybody, doesn't matter whether they've ever played golf or not, everybody has a natural body rhythm and a natural mm-hmm. swing. One of the things that we have to be careful of in this industry is that what we say or what we relay to our students doesn't get in the way of that natural motion. And if you Uh think about it, you know, from from childhood, when we swing a stick, it's a very free-flowing motion for the most part. I mean, obviously, there's some coordination issues when you're you're toddlers. But when you get a little bit older, most people can (laughs) swing a stick or uh, swing an object. But what ultimately happens is when somebody comes in and says, well, no, you need to do it like this and you do that, suddenly they get out of their natural rhythm. And this is something that I've seen, uh, and and this is, again, because I think that a lot of times, you know, and I'm not saying all teachers do this, but sometimes in the industry we get in our own way. We try to uh, instill what we believe this particular student should or shouldn't do, and a lot of times it's maybe not going to jive with the natural rhythm or, or body motions that that particular student has. We try to, and I've said this before on the show, try to put them all into the um, into the same uh, box. And this is something that I've seen in the golf industry for for many many years uh, with different swing theories. And that, uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but putting everybody in the same box, it can be, um, in my opinion, I think it can be very damaging. And a lot of times that can also add to the frustration of the students. Um, Peter, I want to ask you this question. And this is a question mm-hmm. I've never really put in this context, but I thought it was an interesting one. If you were in front of a group, doesn't matter how big it was, uh, who never played golf before, how would you describe the experience to them?
2: Never played golf before ne- never been on a golf yep. course before. they've they've
1: they've never played golf before i mean this is this is like fresh clay in your hands. How would you and describe I've,
2: the experience of them well i i did that i've done that for the past you know two semesters of Williams college just teaching the phys ed golf class and mm-hmm. it it's amazing i mean in Nature. <laughs> I, I would say it's just a it's a really naturally organic experience. It really is. I mean, and I say that to them in the beginning, and then they get you know as we progress through the class and they're spending more time on the golf course, they agree with that, and they appreciate. Right. If they're not appreciating the golf aspect, they're appreciating the nature and the scenery, and they see animals and they they're walking through, you know, a golf course that's extremely well manicured and they can't believe the grass. They think mm-hmm. it's fake. I mean, it, right. <laughs> they really do. They they really thought the putting the the putting surface was fake because it was just it was grass that they'd never seen before. And it's amazing just to still watch them discover their surroundings. And then, you know, the the idea of making contact. They're wrapping their head around the idea of making contact with the golf ball. However they're gripping mm-hmm. it, it the, the, the mechanics of it are insignificant. And when they make contact for the first time, you know, whether it's to whatever quality it may be, there's the look on their face of just joy. Like they'd just done something that they never thought they can do. (laughs) Mm. And it's fun. It's really, really fun to watch and see.
1: Yeah. And and I think something else too, you know, sorry, go ahead, please finish your thought.
2: No, go ahead. No, you go ahead.
1: What I was going to say or or add to Peter is, is, is this, um, you know, I've always equated golf uh, and the comparisons to to life, and I actually did this recently. In fact, I think it was last week um, when uh, I had my very special guest Eddie Merens uh, on the show. And mm-hmm. of course, Eddie, you know, is is a top professional. He's been around the game for, uh, I mean, years just racked them up. I mean, he's 85 years young, and he's just, you know, been around some of the best players in the world. And you know, I said to him that really. I equate golf to to life in so many ways, because if you think about it, you know, in life, we get faced on a daily basis with a variety of different challenges. Some can be very minor. Some can be very major and and can be even have tragic consequences. And we have to learn how to navigate those different obstacles in our life in order to to continue living. And I found a way to equate that on the golf course. And, and obviously as a quick example, um, you know, when you're out there and you're, you're stepping up in the first tree, tee, excuse me, you know, and you, as you look down the fairway, you see some of the different obstacles. It might be uh, maybe some fairway bunkers. It might be water up the left or right side, maybe out of bounds. So there are obstacles and really the better golfer is able to navigate those obstacles to his or her ability in the fewest strokes possible. And that's really the object of of golf is to get around the golf course for 18 holes or whatever it is you're playing, but 18 holes in the fewest strokes possible. And what golf has done is thrown up a few roadblocks. We're going to put some bunkers here. We're going to put some water here. We're going to put a few hazards over here. And the better player will learn how to navigate those obstacles or overcome those obstacles when need be. Um, in the instance, if they, if they get into a hazard or they fall, uh, their ball falls into the water uh, with a, a bad uh, tee shot or errant uh, shot. So what you learn on the golf course and how you handle those challenges are very similar to how you handle the different obstacles that you deal with in life. So when I'm working with somebody that, that's brand new is I say to them, what you're going to do is you're going to go out there. First and foremost, I want you to have fun but you're going to be challenged. And I want to see how you're going to handle those challenges when you get out on the golf course. It doesn't matter how well they hit the ball. It doesn't matter whether they, as you said, whether they've got the perfect grip. I want to see how they're going to handle themselves on the golf course. Are they going to get scared? Are they going to get intimidated? Or are they going to meet and try to the best of their ability to overcome those challenges? And once I see that, then that's going to tell me what I truly need to work on. Um, Because a lot of times, as I said earlier, um, they may have some good skills already, but it may be how they play the game is really where their downfall is. So to to answer that question that I asked you is I want them to have an experience when they're out in the golf course, and then I want Mm -hmm. to equip them with the tools necessary to not only have fun, but to handle those challenges and obstacles while they're out there. And that's really, in my opinion, what I think golf instruction is is equipping them with the tools and the knowledge on how to over, overcome mm-hmm. some of those obstacles. Uh agree, mm-hmm. disagree or or do you want to add to
2: that? No, I completely agree. I you know, it's there is that comparison that's it's a great comparison you're drawing that golf is very comparable to life and if you know what you can be as a, an adult the best thing you can do is be best equipped to handle whatever comes your way. And it's very, very similar right. to golf. I agree with you. Completely. Yeah, and, and and this
1: is what I think when people put that into perspective because they don't really think about it. You know, they think, well, I gotta, you know, I gotta hit my tee shot, and I've got, to, and they understand that the trouble and the obstacles are out there, but they don't really think about it. They're too busy focusing on their swing, making sure they're getting in the right position, or making sure they're making uh, perfect contact. So they've got a lot of different things on there, but they're not really focusing on the challenges or the actual task that's on hand. They've got too many things buzzing around in their head, and this would get. Uh, the average golfer, I think, in a lot of trouble. The pros go up there. They know what obstacles are out there. They know what they need to do. They've got a a goal in mind. It's a short-term goal uh, wrapped around other goals that are going to ultimately end up hopefully winning the golf tournament. And that's essentially what they do. And this is the same thing that the different hurdles that we uh, experience in life. And I think that, um, you know, if you can navigate – those challenges out in the golf course then you're apt to have an easier time uh handling those different obstacles and challenges that you might be facing in everyday life so that's something Mm -hmm. for folks to think about um and and i want to obviously move on because we're going to be running out of time here soon and i want to give you an opportunity to to talk a little bit more yeah of course update uh, folks Uh, obviously yeah just a quick update folks um i just received a a text from uh, john uh, hughes uh uh, our other uh, special guest on the Coach's Corner panel. And as we suspected, uh, he was running late with a lesson and uh, uh, sends his apologies. So uh, not to worry, John, Peter and I are, are handling the fort uh, quite well and and uh, we're happy to, to carry the, the load tonight and we'll get you next time. But um, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a wow moment in your career? Has there ever been a moment uh, that you went, wow? I mean, it, you know, that was fantastic. Or okay. you know, just, I was
2: gonna say because wow. <laughs> give us one. Obviously, we don't have a lot of spectrum. time, but... no, I mean, yeah, right. I, there. I mean, it's been you know, fortunately, there's been some a lot of really there's been quite a few positive wow moments, but I think it's just my I think it's because I just so empathetic as to exactly how difficult this can be to do, you know, just not swinging the golf club, but playing golf itself. You know, I would say the most recent is that we, you know, we have one of our members who's just a a fantastic person. He's so much fun. Uh, A relatively new golfer, but, you know, and I would say a year ago he was shooting in the nineties, you know, and I played golf with him for the first time in a while and, he was just playing so well, and mm-hmm. he was moving well. He was hitting shots that he just didn't have before, and I, I just said, "Wow!" I really did say, "Wow!" I said, "Wow, you really have gotten." A, <laughs> I just told him, "You've gotten, you've improved dramatically, and it's really nice to see," because he's just a nice person. Um, right. And everybody says that. I mean, to the point where last week he broke eighty. He shot 79 when, you know, which is about almost a more than a 20 stroke improvement over last year, you know, and we were together last night and he got, you know, unofficially voted, you know, (laughs) the, the most improved of his group of friends and, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. just fun. It's nice to see because he's really, and I asked him just, you know, we're walking together and I, he said, I asked him what he contributed to, you know, that kind of improvement. He says, well, I just, he said, I feel more comfortable on the golf course. He feels more like he, he just has a better sense of what he can do and what he can't do. And, and I thought that was extremely strong and insightful of him. It was great. And that, so that's just most recently, that was the the wow that that just happened this past week. So.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. And what a great story. You know, Peter, what's interesting about that is, that's really, in my opinion, the goal that all golfers should seek is get to a point in your game where you're confident and you're comfortable. And that doesn't mean you're hitting everything perfect out there because nobody does. We we know that, uh, that the, the realistic side of golf is nobody hits perfect shots all the time. But when you get to a comfort level with your game that you're confident that when you go out there, you're going to be able to bring your very best each and every time. And even when you don't, it's not going to get you down. You're not going to be throwing your clubs or, or or getting upset or snapping at your spouse when you get home. You're going to be able to say, okay, today wasn't my best round, but somehow, way, shape, or form, I'm going to learn from this experience. And when I go out next Tuesday or next weekend and play with uh, the group again, I'm going to have something that I can – draw on and another experience that i can draw on and that's ultimately in my opinion what makes a better golfer i mean you can sit and beat balls from now until the end of time that doesn't necessarily going to make you a better golfer it's it's how you handle the different experiences uh and challenges and then come to terms with those challenges that in my opinion i think makes you a better golfer and and obviously your friend there uh has has come to that realization as well and and kudos to him i mean that's a, that's a big yeah. that's a big wow yeah that's a big wow to come yeah. from you know barely breaking 90 uh to then breaking 80 barely
2: breaking 100 barely breaking 100 was, yeah sorry just amazing amazing stuff it was great to, it was good fun good fun that's fantastic
1: all right peter um let me ask you th- this last question and uh, mm-hmm. and if you haven't had if you haven't had one yet um i've i've got a, a sort of fallback question but uh your first ever or maybe only hole in one, or best yep. round played. If you didn't have a hole in one, um, walk us through that uh, a little bit. If you've had a hole in one, tell us about your first hole in one. Obviously, I'm sure an exciting uh, moment. Um, yeah, but absolutely. Tell us
2: sort of going in your mind and and uh, maybe a little bit about it. Um, so I'm a graduate of Methodist University. So we have our our, our members club golf course on campus. We're really fortunate. Um, that's where I had my first hole in one. It was during my the uh second week of my first year in school um, it was I was the first person to ever get a hole in one on that hole ever and it was a 218 yard uphill par three with a green that had about a six to seven percent slope uh right to left. Um, and I hit a two iron up there and made it and um the week after that I, I lipped out on the fourth hole for a double eagle and I think if I made that double eagle I wouldn't be playing golf anymore. So I <laughs> <it> was so <laughs> I was just casting my chips at that point. Um but it you know, it's it was kind of it was a blind shot. Um it's straight up you know, not straight up hill, but it's pretty you know, good twenty feet uphill, so you don't see it go in. Um, but you get up there, and mm-hmm. it was great. Right? I had a I hit a max fly revolution. I know. Oh I wow. That. <laughs> that's <laughs> well. That's how I had. Long ago uh, was. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, that is that is long ago, Peter. Um, I had not as eventful uh, of a uh, first hole in one, and it was a par three. It was actually. Um, very few courses at that time, uh, had this, but, um, it was actually hole number 18, which was a par three in this particular course. They now have uh, another 27, I believe another 27 holes, but it was at Hidden Lake, uh, golf and country club in uh, Burlington, Ontario and up in Canada, of course, where I'm originally from
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, hole number 18. And I was having, you yeah, know, you know, an okay round. Uh, and it was, uh, I think it was uh, 194 it was playing to that day. Uh, it actually can play longer, but I think it was playing to about 194. And I actually hit a four iron, I had a little bit of a breeze behind me. But was, what was interesting about it was in behind the green uh, is the parking lot. Of course the, the drive, uh, driveway into the, the golf facility runs along the right hand side and then of course you got the parking lot and then the clubhouse to the right. And when I hit it, there was a, a, a large uh, group of trees in behind, so I kind of lost the, the 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 ball for a moment, and I had visions because I I really stepped on it, and I thought this thing's gone, and I <laughs> I I was just praying that it was going to hit the trees, hit the trees, because there were a lot of nice looking cars parked in that that parking lot, and they pretty much backed right up um, almost under that hole, and I was just waiting for the the shattering glass. And my playing partner, who was a very good friend of mine, David, at the time, he said, I think that went in. I said, no, I said, that, that's gone, David. I said, it's, it's in the parking lot. Well, sure enough, we got up there. Uh, you know, not a, 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 an exciting hole, not an exciting, um, you know, strategy, if you will. But it was my first hole-in-one. And I was thankful for two reasons. Obviously, the hole-in-one. And thankfully, I didn't shatter anybody's windshield uh, in the parking lot and behind um, and actually funny, yeah, enough, you're the, the excited because summer, you I, didn't have
2: to buy a new windshield <laughs> for a Porsche. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, I was early twenties at the time and, and I actually yeah. funny enough, I, I worked at that golf course the following summer and, uh, you know, I, I made a suggestion that they alter the parking lot a little bit. I said, because it makes it very intimidating for, for people that, uh, you know, are playing 18 and, and sure enough, they did. They actually took out that row of cars and and uh and moved it to a different area but um it it was very interesting and and that was my very first one and and uh it it was just you know an exciting yeah and 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 it just you know had so many i mean it it could have gone bad so many ways you know if i had have you know not hit a, a solid shot obviously i would have come up short or if i had have you know hit a little bit too much fade or or in those days i called it a slice um you know i could have been getting the cars coming up and down the the uh the drive so it had many opportunities uh, of of having a, a hazardous uh outcome but uh, fortunately for me it was a hole in one in my first one and and i've had two in, in my career but uh um nonetheless they were they were fun um peter as always uh, i had a great time and um i, I enjoy you coming Likewise. on coach's corner and and uh i'm sorry that john wasn't able to join us uh but uh, Wait, them, the breaks go. as he's they say.
0: Fun.
1: yeah john's a, john's a good guy and he's been on the show many many times uh not only as a guest but uh, also on the coach's corner panel he's been pretty regular and and uh just to update everybody of course uh i'm going to be sending out to all of the the guys and the gals that have been on the coach's corner panel uh the 2018 schedule is going to be coming out here i'm hoping to get it out uh, before Thanksgiving, everybody uh, a chance to uh, to think about uh, what they want to do. But uh, we're, we're gearing up um, for a new season uh, taking place in 2018. So, for those of you that have been on the panel, and I hope you'll come back on, and for those of you that may be tuning into the show tonight, some of you pros that have never been on the Coach's Corner panel, um, by all means, uh, you want to step up and, and join. We're going to have a lot of fun. We've got some great uh, things going to be happening next year. So Peter, I hope I can count on you coming back next year as well.
2: Absolutely. Uh, we'll have a lot yes. of fun. Uh-huh.
1: And, uh, and Peter, just in some, uh, closing, uh, moments here, uh, of the coaches corner panel, uh, just let the folks know if they want to reach out to you and, and, uh, and maybe, uh, let you help them with their game or maybe just, uh, maybe might have some questions for you. Uh, let the folks know how they can do that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Always feel free to reach out to me. Um, especially on social media. um, you know, I'm on Facebook under my name. Um, I have a, a, a fan page as well. It's Peter Agazarian, PGA and TPI Performance Coach. Um, I am on most prevalent on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Daily Golf Coach, and also on Twitter um, at Daily Golf Pro. Um, please feel free to reach out. Um, send me a DM. Any questions, I can answer for you. I'm happy to. Uh, I also have a website that's uh, uh, gogolfcoach.com. And um, you know, going into the off season here in the Northeast, um, I'm teaching ten months a year. So I take off uh, November and April for the most part, spend my family. But uh, I do have the, like I said, the facility in North Adams, Massachusetts, which is uh, right in that upper northwest corner, and also a, a facility outside Springfield, uh, which. A lot of people from Connecticut, uh, eastern part of uh, Massachusetts, and, and Vermont actually uh, really like that facility because it's so close to the uh, Route 90 or the mass turnpike and also Route 91, uh, which really runs right down the center part of New England. So um, however I can help, hmm. let me know, please. And, uh, um, you know, I'm always just happy to answer questions or, um, you know, I'm really going to be putting out pro- um, programs for 2018 at Taconic here shortly. Um, really my, the, one of the most popular programs this year was uh, the day I just call it the daily program. There was quite a few people that traveled from outside the area, um, you know, had a morning of instruction, uh, bunch lunch, chat together, uh, went and had an 18 hole playing lesson. That's something that's uh, definitely going to be available again. So if you're, Obviously, from outside of the area, if you're listening, uh, that's a very good option. And Williamstown itself is a, a, a very cool little town and a lot of very fun things to do and uh, a lot of art and and museums as well, if that's your thing.
1: Perfect. Well, Peter, as always, thank you very much for coming on the Coach's Corner panel tonight. And uh, a little bit different panel uh, than what we normally have here, but uh, always got to mix it up every once in a while, right? And and uh, I had fun. It's I, you I and I, having It's you great. On the show. It's perfect. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, um, I'll, uh, I'll uh, give my, my good friend John a, a ribbing a little bit later. No, I'm only kidding. Um, I love uh, having John on the show, and, and I know these things happen, and I appreciate you giving of your time. Um, mm-hmm. No, I'm happy the, to. All, all the time on the panel discussion. So have a great uh, weekend, and, and uh, in case I, I don't uh, talk with you before, uh, happy Thanksgiving, and uh, I will uh, see you next time on the Coach's Corner Panel.
2: Yeah, you as well, Ted. Thanks so much.
1: You're very welcome, thank you. All right, that was my very special guest, uh Peter Agazarian, of course, on the coach's corner panel and and all kidding aside, uh, my good friend John Hughes, a PJ Master, uh professional uh, out of Orlando, unfortunately wasn't able to uh make it this evening and uh, sends his apologies. So we'll we'll uh, we'll get him next time, but um not not to worry, I'm always uh, always happy to have uh, him on the show and I know as I've said so many, many times uh, here on uh, golf talk live that, uh, you know, these things happen. Everybody's working hard. Everybody's uh, got things that they need to do. So I don't have a, an issue with that, but um, I'm very excited about my, my very special guest this evening. Um, you all I'm sure will know him uh, once I uh, bring him on here. Uh, his name is Peter Kessler. Of course, uh, he's a golf announcer known as the voice. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about him and then I'm going to bring him on. Cause I see he's ready. Uh, Peter Kessler was the voice of HBO Sports from 1990 through 95, uh, narrating Peabody, uh, Ace, and uh, Emmy Award winning documentaries, including When It Was a Game, When It Was a Game 2, The Boxing Trilogy, In This Corner, and The Sweet Science. Uh, He was the premier talent at Golf Channel from 1995 through to 2002 and hosted, wrote, and produced over 1,300 live one-hour episodes Uh, on four different shows, uh, Golf Talk Live, uh, Academy Live, Viewers Forum, and, of course, Masters Highlights. Uh, An active figure in the golf industry, Peter, has been featured in multiple golf publications around the world, including cover stories uh, in Golf World and Golf Week. His expertise and historical acumen was the subject of a 10-page profile and interview in Golf Digest. Additionally, Peter has produced programs for Callaway uh, Golf, Adams Golf, Gary Player Golf, and, of course, Bobby Jones Golf. Uh, The first voice uh, on the PGA Tour Network, Peter also wrote and hosted a daily show from 2005 through 2015. His podcast, uh, Reading the Break, of course, uh, has been on iTunes, was rated the number one golf uh, podcast for 2014 and 2015, and is continually sought after uh, for his narrating work. Uh, Peter has provided voiceover talent for American Express, the NBA the USTA and of course the Boys and Girls Club of America and we're going to talk about uh, some of those things and of course his podcast and many many other great things uh, as we continue the conversation but uh, let me welcome my very special guest Mr. Peter Kessler.
3: I am am delighted to be with you and I'll tell you it when you told me that uh, one of your guests was unable to make it it reminded me of something that Arnold Palmer once said to me he And I had just played golf at Bay Hill, and he didn't feel good, and he was supposed to be the guest speaker at a dinner, but he was only supposed to be one of three or four. And I said, look, if you feel this bad, don't go. And he said, no, when you make a commitment, you show up no matter how you feel, no matter what's going on. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well said. Words to live by. Um, you know, it, it happens and, and as I'm sure you know, Peter, um, from doing all that you do, sometimes these things happen and
2: and of course.
1: Uh, I I've known John yeah, I've known John for a number of years. He's a great uh, uh golf professional and uh he was actually he texted me a, a few moments before uh, we went live and and said that uh, he was uh, tied up with a student. So I understand that. And and these guys are giving of their time. So, I'm, I, you know, Peter and I, uh, my previous guest, uh, we held the fort, as they say. Peter, I want to say before well, we get into realize our discussion.
3: You'd the guy, I didn't realize you'd mention the guy's name. I apologize.
1: No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. Um, Peter, I want to say this before we start our, our conversation tonight Um, I have been, obviously, a a huge fan, as as many, many have uh, for years. Uh, I remember your earlier days, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment, uh, from the Golf Channel. And one of the things that that I guess I loved about watching um, those very I mean, as I mentioned, uh, you you did four uh, shows on on the Golf Channel. One of the things that I really enjoyed, uh, particularly uh, about your time with them – was the atmosphere that you created. Um, you know, as an example, you know, you had a, a great backdrop, if you will. You had uh, the fireplace and, you know, some comfortable chairs, and you, you felt like you were in somebody's living room, uh, you know, around the fireplace, a fireside chat, if you will. And it was a very comfortable feeling, much unlike many of the platforms that we see today um, with some of the sports uh, centers and, and so forth going on. And it really impressed me how you made everybody feel like they were sitting right there with you. Um, So I want to ask you this, was that part of your plan or was that something that uh, the Golf Channel decided to do um, from the get-go?
3: Well, you know, it's funny you should ask that just the way that you did because When the Golf Channel went on the air on January 17th, 1995, the first show that we did was live, and it was with me and Arnold Palmer. And in October, most of the people in October of 94 had now arrived at the Golf Channel that were going to be there for the launch in January of 95. And in my particular case, when I was hired, I was hired to host a show on Mondays to talk to the greatest players in the world, and on Tuesdays and Wednesdays to talk to the greatest teachers in the world. I also did some sideline reporting, as a walking reporter for the Nike tour events in my very few months after the uh, channel launched in 95, then they pulled me inside to do more studio work. But what happened was they were so busy building the sets and getting things ready and getting the control room ready and getting all the electronic equipment in and the robotic cameras Mm -hmm. and people people to work the robotic cameras that I was absolutely left 100% alone to figure out how i was going to do these shows and Mm. when the time came to do the very first show nobody in the building knew what i was going to do i had spent 30 years reading golf history several nights a week from the time i was 13 years old until the golf channel went on the air and so i had a very strong uh, knowledge base I had also acted in college and in high school. I did community theater. I did a lot of public speaking. I was comfortable in front of people. Uh, Stars never never intimidated me. And so what I did was, in a normal week, I would put a pad down on Tuesday morning, and by the next Monday morning, when the show was going to be on, the chat show with the great players, I would have probably a hundred questions on this yellow pad and I would cull them down to 20 questions on the Monday morning. And I would do all of this at home and I would call into the studio and I would tell my producer, Lee Siegel, okay, in the first segment I'm going to do this. So could you have this piece of film ready? Could you prepare this graphic? Could you do this for me to get it set up so that when I get to this point, I have what I need from you. And, I knew my subject so well and did so much research during the week to get ready for the show that not only was it easy for me to come up with a list of great questions, but I knew Mm -hmm. exactly what the answers were going to be. Now, because I knew exactly what the answers were going to be, I was able to, in my head, time out the show. So my idea was to present each one hour show As a one-hour play, I knew what I was going to say. Hmm. I knew what the guest was going to say. I was pretty sure I knew what my follow-up was going to be. So I always called it down to 20 questions. I wrote it on a legal pad. I put it on the inside pocket of my sport coat. And actually, only one time in 1,300 shows did I ever pull out the list to look at it because I had memorized (laughs) it. I, I, I actually had a photographic memory and could see pages and books if you asked me a question about history i could actually see the page and i could see if there was a smudge mark on the page in my mind's eye so my idea was it's a one hour play i know my lines i know what the other guys lines are so in my head i timed it out and i can't recall a single occasion in 1300 shows where I didn't get in my 20 questions, and it didn't go exactly as I had planned, except for two shows where I feel I made mistakes in how I handled the shows. But in terms of the timing and the atmosphere, that was something I dreamt up myself. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I had done a lot of theater. I was a very big movie Mm -hmm. buff when I was a young boy, Yankee Doodle Dandy, with James Cagney as George M. Cohan the man who invented song and dance on Broadway was a very big influence to me. And so I had an acute awareness from a theatrical point of view, what these things ought to be. And so that's how I was able to create the atmosphere because I was never guessing and I was never wondering. And I was literally performing this one hour show that we did without rehearsal.
1: Yeah. And, and they were fabulous, you know, and I give you obviously a lot of credit, um, for obviously having tremendous preparation and it makes a lot of sense now hearing, um, what went behind it. And, and, and I guess, you know, Peter, one of the things that, that always struck me, um, that was interesting about it was, was the atmosphere that you did create. That's why I enjoyed it. It, you know. You know, obviously, we knew a lot of the answers, you know, when we talked about, um, you know, Nicholas's uh, Masters win in 86 and and how historical that became uh, some years later on uh, to this day. But it was just the way that the guests were comfortable, the audience, uh, you know, meaning us was comfortable. You just had a way uh, of, of sort of putting things together. Um, that just made it that way, and I think that's why I enjoyed so much watching, and, and I've always been a big um, follower of, of you for for many many years. And uh, well, I thank know, you for that. There, and that's part of were, the- Go it. It
3: called on it, the show's called on the three, four, or five things that I'm really, really good at. I also had mm-hmm. some gifts that I just allowed to occur. And it called on none of the thousand things that I'm absolutely horrible at. So it was an incredibly perfect fit for what my strengths turned out to be and what gifts I ended up having, like the gift of making you feel like you were in the living room. There's no way to, 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 to make you do that. It was just a gift right. of mine that I was able to create that kind of environment.
1: Yeah, and, and you, you did it uh, incredibly well, because that's exactly how I felt, and I know many others that that used to watch during that time uh, felt. I mean, I've had people come up to me and say, that's exactly how uh, you feel, like you felt like you were just right there in the room with you and whatever special guest. And we're going to talk about some of those guests uh, in just a moment, but I want to ask you a question I ask a lot of uh, guests that come on here Um, just to give the audience a little bit of an understanding of how you sort of got involved in golf in general. So you've always had a a very long and and very interesting career that still continues to this day. What drew you to the game um, as somebody, obviously, that has been at the Golf Channel, but also the game itself? What was about the game that you enjoyed uh, the most, and uh, how did you sort of become involved?
3: When I was eight or nine years old, and living in New Jersey, my parents belonged to a local club, and my mother used to take me and my sister and my two younger brothers, I'm the oldest, to the swimming pool, and my dad would play golf with his brother every Saturday and Sunday. And one day when I was eight or nine, I wandered away from the pool, and I found myself on what was the 10th tee of the golf course. And just at that moment, my father and his brother, my uncle, and their other two players in the group came to the 10th tee. So I watched, and my father hit what I later learned to be a howling slice, and then his brother, (laughs) my uncle, made a hole-in-one. So the second shot that Mm. I ever saw hit in golf was a hole-in-one, and of course that fascinated me, and... What happened was, you know, at that time, there was no pro junior programs or anything like that. And I didn't know anybody else my age who was interested in golf. And so really, the only time I got to play golf as a kid was when we would go up for Fourth of July or Memorial Day or Labor Day and for dinner. And I would leave the table and I would go down to the bag room and I would take a driver and some clubs out of somebody's bag. I had no idea whose bag it was and I would play up to the first hole and back to the first tee, and up to the first hole and back to the first tee. And so my early love of golf became such that I played it at the end of the day, and I was by myself, and even now, 55 years later, I still enjoy going out all by myself at 530 and playing nine holes with nobody else around, and and don't bring my phone in in the cart. And I've always loved to play at that time of day. So I fell in love with the game at that particular moment, and I didn't really get a chance to play much until my family moved to California in 1966 when I was 14 years old, and again my dad joined a club, and there were a lot of kids my age who played, two of whom are still my closest friends that I speak to all the time, actually three, that the thing that spurred my deeper interest in the game was when I was 13 years old, somebody gave me a copy of Bobby Jones's autobiography that he wrote when he was 24 in 1926. Now, at that time... Oh. He had not yet won the Grand Slam. That would be four years later. But in 1926, he became the first person to win the U.S. Open and the Open Championship in the course of the same season. And at the end of that year, he wrote the book. And he made 300 private copies that he would really just give to friends and family at Christmas time. So when I read this book, I just fell in love with Bobby Jones and I fell in love with golf history and I fell in love Mm -hmm. with his evocation of time and place. And I understood what he was talking about when he discussed the feelings that he had when he played and the feelings that he had when he would miss hit a shot and how sometimes it was difficult to hold on to the golf club after a swing. If his emotions got too strong and he got too angry internally that holding a club was the last thing he wanted to do and somehow the fact that it seared his soul really touched me so when Mm -hmm. i finished down the fairway i started to go and get golf books and i had my mom and dad get me golf digest and golf world and golf magazine which were all available at the time we got a subscription And I went to libraries, and I went to bookstores, and I started to build up a collection. And I was otherwise a fairly normal teenager, but I read golf history voraciously. I read it several nights a week. I read it for several hours. I read the same books over and over. I expanded my collection. And I continued to read golf history from the time I was 13, until I was 42 when we first went on the air with the Golf Channel. So I had had a 30-year PhD program in (laughs) golf history, and I probably was one of the top five most knowledgeable golf historians, if you will, at that point in time, with ever having thought about anything like that. But when the Golf Channel opportunity presented itself, which maybe we'll talk about how that came about, I sure. was so prepared in terms of knowing the history of the game and its championships and 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 its players and and how the game probably started and how putting began and the history of golf balls and golf equipment and 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 great players themselves. So I had this huge wealth of knowledge, which was accompanied by a really deep love for playing the game. I just loved to play golf. And I played as often as I could. And I had a job before I joined the Golf Channel for many years that allowed me to join a local club where I lived in New York at at that particular time from 1981, say, through 1994, when I moved to Orlando for the Golf Channel's Mm -hmm. opening. And so I loved to play. I loved to hit balls. Nothing gave me more pleasure than to go to the range and hit balls just for the longest periods of time. I loved hitting wedges more than any other club. I found that I wouldn't wear myself out if I hit wedges. I found out that hitting wedges was a good key to scoring. So my love of the history of the game combined with my love of playing the game was a pretty ideal combination for being able to take the information that I had absorbed as a historian and as somebody who was a player, not particularly a good player, but a player, you know, who really cared deeply about the game in, in every way. So those those things came together, you know, to, to form my sensibility about the game. So I had a deep love for all things golf.
1: Well Wow. You know, it's interesting. I think probably one of the only other people that I know um, that I would add into that would be Ben Crenshaw. Um, you know, Ben Crenshaw talks uh, about he, uh, and I don't know to what level, but I, I've heard him talk uh, over the years uh, about his love of the history of the game as well. And I remember there was an interview. In fact, it was probably on the Golf Channel some years ago from his home. And he walked into his... his um, library if you will and had just about every book you could imagine and he i think also immersed himself in the history of the game uh it was very important it was a very important part of his uh golfing career not just playing out on the pj tour and and of course in the majors um but also studying and understanding the history of the game itself and uh uh, again i don't know to what level uh he would be classified as a historian but he did have a love uh for the history of the game as well and uh, i'm sure he probably would know (laughs) he, yeah <laughs> yes he he's
3: a very knowledgeable historian, and we occasionally will ask each other a question through email and and you're not allowed mm-hmm. to look anything up. you must just answer the question and so the last question <laughs> I asked him was what were the final two practice round scores that Francis we met had in nineteen thirteen before he won the U.S. Open in a playoff by shooting 72 in the playoff and beating the two guys who were acknowledged to be the two best players in the world, Ted Ray and Harry Varden. And immediately he said, a pair of 88s. And then he wrote, and that was the answer. He shot 88, 88 in his (laughs) last two practice rounds and then won the U.S. Open. So he wrote back and said, okay, in what order did the sand wedge and pitching wedge come into play? And I said the sand wedge actually came first in 1932, and then the pitching wedge was developed because through 1931, the most lofted club in a player's bag was a nine iron. So these guys, like Bobby Jones, when he won at Wingfoot in 1929 with this gaping awning bunkers, had to play those shots, even though he had very few of them to play from the sand. He had to play them with a 9-iron. And winged foot today is really the same course as it was in 1929. And then Jones won in a playoff that was at 36 holes, and he won by 23 shots, shooting 72-69 with no more lofted club than a 9-iron. So we've had some back and forth. The last time I saw Ben, we had time to play 3-holes and he hit a terrible Mm. drive, a terrible second shot, and a terrible chip, and made a 25-footer. On the second hole, he hit a terrible drive, a (laughs) terrible second shot, a terrible chip, and made a 25-footer. And then he did the same thing on the third hole, so he made three 25-footers for par. And there's something about the way that Ben Crenshaw's ball rolls on a green when you're with him in person that it seems to hug the green and be impervious <laughs> to the bumps and imperfections. And then the other thing is you're absolutely certain that the ball's not going to get to the hole. And not only does it get to the hole, but if, if the hole was just a circle and not a hole, his ball would have stopped in the center of the circle.
1: Wow. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I've always ad- ad- admired, uh, you know, his putting prowess, uh for years i mean he's certainly in my opinion if not the best certainly in the top two uh all time of of putters it's it, just incredible um since you very generously uh handed me a soft serve uh, about the golf channel i'm going to reciprocate by obviously asking the obvious question um you you amassed a great amount of knowledge about the game and, and its history and so forth uh, and then, at some point, the opportunity to to be a part of the golf channel uh, with its inception. tell us about how that happened, and was that something that you were interested in at the time, or was it just more happenstance? What was the uh, the procedure, if you will, on becoming part of the golf channel?
3: My dad died very early. I was 20 and he was 50 and I never got to know him very well and we never had a lot of deep mm-hmm. conversations. My parents had split up. He traveled a lot. I didn't know him well. I loved him. He was the manager of my little league team. We played golf, oh, maybe 10 or 15 times in total. He wasn't a very good player. He had been injured in the World War II at Iwo Jima. He was a Marine. And mm-hmm. I never got any sort of information from him or direction from him, or even telling me how to think about what I should do with myself. And one of the things that happened was that I met a fellow who became close to my family and he was an attorney and he got me a job in London working for NM Rothschild and Sons, the very famous investment bank of the very famous European family. And, I I didn't really like the job, and but we lived in London, which was great, and uh, mm-hmm. and and traveled for a couple of years, and then I came back to New York to open up an office for them, and then um and then on my 35th birthday, after I had then bounced around a little bit in the securities industry, I woke up on my 35th birthday and said, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't like it, <laughs> and pe- people had said things about my voice, so I thought, you know. Maybe I'll try to do something with my voice. So I went to a voiceover class on a Monday night that ran from 6 to 10 in downtown New York City. And there were nine actresses and me. And Mm. I was so enthralled at looking at these actresses. I would look at one and say, okay, I would really like to be with her for a week. I'd like to be with her for a month. (laughs) I think I would marry that one that I was paying no attention whatsoever. And But after about 20 minutes, I realized exactly where they were going with this class, and I never went back again. And I went home and started to read advertisements from magazines allowed into a tape recorder, uh, women's magazines, men's magazines, advertisements of any kind, and just started to practice at home a little bit. And a friend of mine worked at HBO Sports And I told him I was going to try to break into the business of doing commercials. And he said, I know a couple of guys who were looking for someone to uh, narrate a few minutes of footage, very rare footage, in color of baseball players from the 1930s and 1940s, as Kodak in 1934 had given the first motion picture, picture cameras for the public to professional athletes. So Mrs. Babe Ruth would take film of her daughter being pushed on the swing at home by the Babe, and then she would take it to the ballpark, and she would take film of of the Babe. So these two guys went to 100 baseball players' families, because most of them had passed on at this point. And they went into attics, and they found about 50 hours of this footage in color from those two decades, the 30s and 40s. And they decided they would try to make a couple of one-hour documentaries. So I went down to their studio in downtown New York City, and I remember standing in front of a television monitor and they played five minutes of this footage and they gave me a script and I looked at the script and I looked at the screen and I looked at the script and I looked at the screen and made sure I got the timing right and realized I instantly that, gee, I, I can actually do this. And so I did the five minutes and they said, thank you very much. And they called me back in six months. And at that point, I'd been sending tapes out, was getting little odds and ends, voiceover jobs, but not enough to leave the securities industry. And they called me back six months later and said, gee, we really like your voice. Would you just come down and read the whole script? Because they want to have a voice to be able to cut the film to to get the timing right. So I went down and I read the whole script and that took an hour and I didn't really make any mistakes. I was just able to, to read it through and line it up with the picture. And six more months went by and they called me again and said, gee, we really like your voice, and this time we want you to actually be the narrator of the documentary. And we got famous actors to read the poetry, uh, Roy Scheider and Ellen Burstyn and James Earl Jones and Jack Palance. And they said, but you'll be the narrator. And I said, great. So on a Friday afternoon in the spring of 1991, I went down to HBO Sports in New York City, and I went into the voiceover booth, and again, they they just showed the film, and I read the script, and by that time I knew the script really, really well. So it right. only took an hour. It only took an hour instead of an afternoon, and it went on the air July seventh of ninety one, and four days later they called me and said, um, "Gee, the thing's a huge success. Uh, the, the number of people writing and calling who wanting to see this is incredible." would you like to be the voice of hbo sports so i said well sure i'd love that mm-hmm. and of course as it turned out being the voice of hbo sports meant that you really just went down four or five times a year and spent a friday afternoon reading stuff documentary stuff promos i mean how many times could you say this has been a special presentation right. of hbo sports you only need that one time so there wasn't that much work but i was narrating documentaries And I found out relative to other people that I was very quick that a lot of other people went back and had to do stuff over, and I was just able to just kind of go right through it, and it came very easily to me. So I had all the golf knowledge, which we talked about, and I started to play golf with one of the guys who produced the boxing films. And the more we played, the more my knowledge of the game seeped out. Well, lo and behold, he's the guy who gets the job in 1994 to hire all the on-air talent for the Golf Channel. So he said, hmm. how would you like to host TV shows for a new Golf Channel? And I said, yeah, I'd really like that. And he said, you know, maybe on Monday you can host a show with the greatest players in the world. I mean, they already had it all planned out. There was a business plan in place. and. Tuesday and Wednesday you could interview the greatest teachers in the world and I had read every single golf book that there possibly could that I could get my hands on over the previous thirty years. So I'd read every instructional book and I'd read every biography and I knew all about these people. And he said, Okay, I'm going down to Orlando because we both lived in New York and he said, And I'm Mm -hmm. gonna go tell the guys I'm gonna hire you. So he called me back and he said, They don't wanna hire you because you've never been on camera before. And he said, I told them that you acted. I told them you were a public speaker. I told them you were really comfortable in front of people. And so what they decided to do was to test my knowledge of golf. And I thought, perfect. (laughs) So one night at 3 in the morning in the summer of 1994, my phone rings at 3 a.m. and I pick it up. And it's this guy who used to be with HBOs, now with the Golf Channel, to hiring all these people. And he said to me, who was the first famous female golfer? And I thought about it for a second, and I realized he didn't say the word professional. So I said, well, the first famous female golfer actually was Mary Queen of Scots, who was caught playing golf the day after her husband, Lord Darnley, had been murdered. And there was a long pause (laughs) on the other end of the phone and he said okay i'll i'll call you back soon so this went on for weeks and it you know and then, then remember there's no computers there's no google there's no going to your library right. you're sleep at 3 a.m. but it didn't matter what they asked me it was it was all as though it was on the first page of the manual so the last call they called me and said okay who was sam parks junior i knew more about sam parks junior than his mother did Sam Parks Jr. lived <laughs> lived in Pittsburgh, near Oakmont, He and the Open was played there in 35. So Sam played nine holes every single day at Oakmont that he could in the months preceding the U.S. Open. And he did something that nobody else had ever done before. He started to measure distances from trees and fairway bunkers to greens, to the beginning of the green, the middle of the green, the back of the green, and he started to keep a book, which became the first yardage book. Other people got credit for it later, particularly Jack Nicholas, but it was Sam Parks right. Jr. Now, Sam was really a 75 shooter, but Sam thought that Oakmont was the hardest course in America, which it very well may have been in 1935, and he figured 75s would win the U.S. Open, and 75s won the U.S. Open, and Sam Parks is the guy who shot them. So then there was a really long silence on the other end of the phone again. And the guy said to me, his name was Michael Whale, and he said, I'll call you tomorrow. So the next day they called, and they offered me the job. And the job started that October when they sent me to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to spend spend three days with Arnold Palmer, who I did not yet know, to interview him, to play golf with him, to hang out with him, to have dinner with him. And I'll just give you one quick story of what happened the first day. It was it was a series of miracles, quite frankly, and I'll give you one of the many miracles. We We did a two-hour interview in the morning, and it was a Monday, and the club was closed. So we went down to the range, and he invited the club pro and the club champ to come play golf at the club that day with him and me. And I had my shoes and with me, and I, had, I brought my clubs with me just in case we were going to play. So we're on the range, and it's just the four of us. Again, the club champ, the club pro, me, and Arnold. And Arnold hits three or four balls, and he looks up at the three of us, and he said, who can tell me what I'm doing differently? And the club pro said, I don't see anything, Arnold. And the club champ said, I don't see anything, Arnold. And he looked at me and he goes, now we had just done a two-hour interview, so he knew I knew a lot about him. And he said, well, you think you know everything about me. What do you see? And I said, for $20, I'll tell you. And he said, really? (laughs) And I said, yeah, really. And he said, okay, what is it? And I said, you have squared your right foot and made it perpendicular to the line of flight during your setup instead of slightly flaring it as you have done your entire career. And he gave me a look of such disbelief and shock. And he said, that's absolutely right. And I said, let me have my 20. And he said, said, we're going to play for it. And I said, no, I want to be your partner. And he said, absolutely not. He said, I'm going to kick your ass. And that's one of the five or six things that felt like that moment that happened during the day off an incredible relationship that we had together. We ended up watching the OJ Simpson trial together at that time. And as we were sitting right. in his home in Latrobe, when the when the trial actually went on, which was a little bit later, we were sitting there and he said, you know, Peter, I, he said, you know, I did those commercials with OJ, the Hertz commercials. And I said, sure. aren't I remember, and he said, you know, He said he had the worst temper of anybody I've ever been around at the slightest provocation. He said if somebody just put something on the set that was askew, that his reaction was so disproportionate to the event that it occurred, that he turned to me and then said, I absolutely believe he could murder people. And so we had that kind of a relationship, and we had those kinds of conversations. And so by the time the golf channel came on the air a few months later, you know, we had really gotten off to as good a start as you could have with another human being. And so when we did that first show, he never asked me what we were gonna do, he never asked anybody, he at that he already completely trusted me and we sit down for the first show And the and the producer again, Michael Whalen, came out, the guy who hired me, and he whispered in my ear before the show, and he said, "Don't be nervous. You're the right guy for the job." And I said, "I'm absolutely not nervous." And the camera went on, and I introduced myself, and I introduced the show, and that was maybe ten seconds. And at that moment, on the first show, ten seconds in, I knew it was going to be incredible. And then I introduced Arnold, and I couldn't have been more comfortable. And it turned out to be the best hour of thinking I had that day and every other day that we had a show. I never got in the car and said, oh, I can't believe I didn't think of this or, oh, I can't believe I said that. I, got, I, I was always stunned, quite frankly, at the risk of being immodest, at how perfectly I was able to recall things, state my questions, do the things that I did to keep the show interesting. And Bob Hope called in. And Dave Marr, who was dying, called in. Uh, the first right. President Bush called in, and the thing went absolutely perfectly. And so that was how I got the job, and that was how it started. And they just left me alone, literally to do whatever I needed to do to get ready for a show. And I did all of it at home. and I would only go into the studio at six o'clock tonight at night get made up, do the show. And I was back in my car at nine fifteen.
1: Wow. You know, and, and it, and it showed Peter, you know, what a, what a great story. Um, I mean, it's just phenomenal. The, the preparation that you put into these shows and obviously you were the right man to, to start the golf channel in that, in that perspective, because, you know, I, and I'm going to be quite honest, I've watched, you know, the golf channel of late and, and I don't mean to be critical But I don't have the same feeling now that I did during that period when you were on it. And I guess it's just because, and I realize times change and and things are different now than what they were at at that point, but it was very easy to see um, that they had the right person um, for that particular position at that time. Speaking of Arnold Palmer and obviously other greats like Nicholas and and so many others that we could talk about I want you to share a Nicholas story if you would and then obviously I know you have a Gene Saracen story as well um, start with Nicholas sure. first well let's see uh, uh, in
3: 1972 I was going to school in San Diego and And at that time, they used to have the Tournament of Champions at La Costa, which was about 20 minutes from where I lived in San Diego. And I joined. It was $500 to join the private club, and it was $10 a month in dues. So even I could afford that as a college student. And so I used to go up there all the time. And for some reason, everything pre-Tiger, nobody ever went to golf tournaments. I mean – Nobody went to golf tournaments. You could go with your best friend part ways and run into each other 15 times during the day, and you could never, of course, do that now. And it was so incredible that I remember in 72, which was the year Jack won the first two legs of the slam and just missed the Open Championship by a shot at uh, Muirfield, the Elite Trevino one, that on Tuesday, for example – I would walk right down the middle of the fairway with Jack during his practice round. There might be one or two other guys who were interested in doing it. I talked to him all the way around the round. He let me hit chip shots. He let me ask him anything that I wanted to ask him. And I couldn't have been more comfortable. And a round ended. And he said to me, do you want to come over to the range and watch me hit some balls? And I said, yeah, I'd love to Jack. And so, and I was 21 years old and, so we went to the range, and in those days, the caddies had baseball gloves, and they would all go out into the range, and the players all mm-hmm. had shag bags, and they would hit them to their caddy. Well, one at that particular instance, I was sitting right next to Jack, right behind him, right where he'd want to sit, you know, 10 feet behind him, 8 feet behind him, and there were three or four other guys and Jack waves his caddy, Angelo, another 10 yards. A, a wave, each wave equaled 10 yards. So he waved right. him out to, one, to 150. So Jack starts hitting seven irons to 150. And they would bounce once, and then Angelo would catch it and put it in, in his bag. And the guy next to me says, I can hit my seven iron 150 yards. And Nicholas looked <laughs> at him, and then he waved Angie back 10 yards to 160. And he hit his 7-iron 160, 170, 180, <laughs> 190. And at 190, wow. with his 7-iron, he turned around and said to the fellow next to me, I can hit my 7-iron as far as I want to, but I choose to hit it 150 yards. Now, many years <laughs> later, when I was at the Golf Channel, we did a show at Jack's house, and he cut my tie off during the show. It was a lot of fun. And yeah. after the show show was over, he asked me to stick around for a couple hours. So the crew cleaned out, and everybody went home except for me back to Orlando. And we sat, and we ate, and he starts to show me around the house. And I see this one picture of him in the famous pose with the putter raised from the 1980 U.S. Open that he won by over Oroiseo Aoki, with whom he played all four days. And I looked at that picture with him and I said, it's definitely in my top five favorite Jack Nicholas pictures. And he looked at me and he said, 182. And I said, what do you mean 182? He said, that's what I weighed, 182. And he said, I just wish I looked like that now. And then I, you know, and it was just another occasion in (laughs) in a long series of data points on the graph. Where I realized he was just like the rest of us, you know, he liked to look good. And he remembered exactly what he weighed at that particular moment and was really, really proud of it. And we ended up having that kind of relationship in terms of talking about things that were more intimate than what he did or didn't do on a golf course or his relationship with Bobby Jones or his father, things that we had discussed at great length on and off the air and I realized that, you know, that we had a great mutual respect. And and over time, as more guests came to the Golf Channel, they had seen me enough that they were already pre-comfortable. They knew it was going to be fine. They knew I wouldn't let them get in trouble. They knew they wouldn't be asked anything that would embarrass them in any way. And so, you know, so they were preconditioned to start to think that it would be a positive experience, which made it, you know, so much easier for me. Now, Gene Sarazen, of course, was born in 1902, the same year as Bobby Jones, and he actually Mm -hmm. won his his first major at the age of 20. He won the 22 U.S. Open, and Jones finished second and then won the next year at the age of 21. And Gene invented and or refined... The Sand Wedge, we used to have a lot of arguments about where the Sand Wedge really came from because I said to him, look, Bobby Jones had one in 1930, and you claimed to invent it in 1932, and he'd get all hot and bothered. I knew how to press his buttons, and he got would get all hot and bothered and say, that club was deemed illegal. The soul was different than the one that I invented, and uh, Sarazen in the 1920s and up and well, for a long time, lived in Harrison, New York. And that's about a 40-minute ride on the train into New York City. And there were four or five stops on the way into the city. So in the mid-20s, Gene used to go into the city for various reasons, including to see his business manager, because he was really the first guy to have an endorsement contract, and that was with Wilson, and he had it for over 50 years. And and he realized that if he took the train that stopped at Pelham, one of the stops on the way, at one fifteen p.m., that that would be where the Ziegfeld Follies showgirls would be getting on the train to go in for rehearsal and for the show that night. So that was his train. Wow. So he would get off the train at Pelham, <laughs> even though he needed to get back on the train, and he would flirt with this one particular blonde who in his words wouldn't give him <laughs> wouldn't give him a tumble that was about 1925 <laughs> 60 years goes by now it's 1985 he's playing as a guest in Bob Hope's celebrity golf tournament he's now 83 years old man comes up to him and says there's a woman that wants to see you and he said what does a woman want to do with an old man like me and he said, well, she asked for you specifically. And he said, okay. So he goes over and he goes behind the stands at 18 and uh, 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 and meets this woman. And he said yeah. he looked at her and he didn't recognize her. And, and she was blonde. And she said, do you remember me? And he said, again, I looked her over and I didn't remember her. And I told her so. And she said, well, I'm the blonde that you used to flirt with in 1925 on the train tracks at Pelham and I would just like to introduce myself my name is Mrs. Bob Hope.
1: Wow. Wow, what a great story.
2: <laughs> yeah, we
3: fantastic.
1: uh it, actually
3: it was it was uh it was a sad ending when he passed away because in April of 99 there was an event up in Boston before the Ryder Cup in the fall, which was held at the Country Club that the Americans won on that great final day with Crenshaw as the leader. And there was a big a, a, a big production to raise money and do all sorts of things to to promote the tournament a few months before. Well, we had it set up so that Gene would call in from Florida. And that we would talk about the early Ryder Cups. And his daughter, Marianne, told me that you know, he studied really hard to try to get ready and to anticipate whatever I might want to ask him. And for some reason, we couldn't get the phone to hook up properly so that we could hear him. Mm. And and I was told the next day by his daughter how unhappy he was and how sad he was and that he was crying and he was ready and he wanted to do it, and he passed away just a few weeks later. And so it, it, it was a sad ending. But I got to spend uh, quite a bit of time with Gene. We used to argue about Bobby Jones. He said, you know, Jones couldn't have gone pro because he wouldn't have been able to handle the steel shafts that came in to vogue after 1930. And I said, well, Gene... I said, Bobby Jones designed the first set of irons with steel shafts for Spalding, and they were the first irons that were designed that had numbers rather than names on them. And Jones had absolutely no problem hitting those golf clubs. So we used to go back and forth, (laughs) argue about all kinds of things. And it's funny, too, because in 1972, the same year that the Nicholas story took place, Reggie Jackson and Gene Sarazen were near the first tee, and Gene would have been seventy at the time. And I used to get called a lot to play in games with guys who would come in from other places because, one year I was the club champ at La Costa, and I was a pretty good player, and and I was good with people, and so a fellow who sort of ran the club, who was part of the actually part of the mafia because um, it was run by the mafia in those days. And I played with all those guys mm-hmm. and hung out with all those guys. And one of those guys said to me one day, have you ever considered a life of crime? And one of <laughs> one of them came up to me and said, would you like to play with Gene Sarazin and Reggie Jackson? So I said, yeah, absolutely, of course. And Reggie Jackson was already Reggie Jackson, and Gene Sarazen was already Gene Sarazin. And so we played right. 18 holes And on the third hole, Reggie and I figure out that we were both dating the same girl. She was the girl who was Mm -hmm. running the gift shop. And he, you know, he started to talk about this beautiful blonde in the gift shop and he'd been dating her. And I said, is it Becky? And he said, yeah, I said, I date her, too. So we got off to a really, really (laughs) good start. And I wanted the three of us to go out to dinner because I wanted to hang out with him. I mean, I liked her, but I was more interested in spending time with him and talking baseball <laughs> and all sorts of stuff and Sarazen shot seventy or seventy one he he never curved the ball he was seventy years old, and we played from sixty six mm. hundred or even you know right around there and in a good win'cause it was Lacosta was near the the Pacific Ocean, and he hit the ball incredibly straight. It never curved. And I said to him, was there a time that you curved the ball or was the time was there a time that you learned that no matter what was going on, your ball wouldn't curve? And he said, yes, he said, in 1923, I played with Harry Varden, who was the first man and the only man to win six British Opens and was the greatest player in the world from 1995 to oh, to, to 1914 or so, when he won his last British Open. But in 1923, he was 53 years old, and they're playing in a tournament, and the first hole's a par three, and there's a strong wind blowing from right to left. So Sarazin aims a little right of the green towards the bunker and kills his shot, and it never veered offline, and it went into the bunker. And Varden said to him on the second tee, don't allow for the wind. He said, you hit the ball so solid, and it's such a medium-low trajectory he said that it will take a gale to blow your balls offline. He said, so not only should you not allow for the wind, he said, but you should go for as many pins as you possibly can because you're so straight and you'll figure out a way if you're aggressive and miss a pin, how to get the ball up and down and make your make your par so that you can move to the next hole and try to do it again. And he said, from that point forward, he said, I basically had never allowed for the wind, when he won the British Open in 1932, he said he ignored the wind, and he certainly ignored it that day, and everything came off his club like a bullet. He was
1: 70 years old. Mm. Wow. Wow. What a great, great story. Um, Peter, I want to ask you, um, and then I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about your podcast, uh, Reading the Break. But, you know, we've obviously seen so many great players, um, some of whom you you've mentioned here tonight, and obviously another one, uh, Tiger Woods uh, has also um, done some incredible feats, if you will on the on the course, but we really haven 't seen since tiger anybody that's dominated obviously there was Jack, uh, and then you know along comes Tiger. Why do you think that is that we 're not seeing anybody dominate um, the sport like we once did
3: well, first of all. I- There's a couple of things. There have been two kinds of dominations since the 1890s. In the 1890s, there was a group of three guys called the Great Triumvirate, and they won between them uh, about 16 British Opens, and that was James Braid and and, uh, and, and, uh, J.H. Taylor and Harry Varden. So they were the Great Triumvirate, but Varden was the best player. And you come to the 1920s, and you had an American great triumvirate because you had Jones, Hagen, and Sarazin, but Jones was the best player. Then you had Nelson, Snead, and Hogan all come up at the same time. Then in the 1960s, you had Arnold, Jack, and Gary, but Jack was the best player and would be for 20 consecutive years from 1960. So even though there have been lots of occasions where there have been a triumvirate of players at the top, One of them was better than the other guys. And in Jack's case, he could hit it farther than anybody else, and he could overpower a golf course, and he was the best thinker, and he was the best lag putter, which people don't particularly uh, find themselves aware of or appreciate, because he never never played for pins. He just played for the fat of the green, and he either made his birdie putter, he knew he'd lag it up and and just tap it in, and he didn't want to chip, and he didn't want to hit bunker shots, and he once said to me, I, he, I said, did you ever work on your short game? And he said, not really. He said, I didn't need one because he said, I hit <laughs> 16 greens around. And he said, and the two greens I missed, I knew I could ship it to 10 feet. And he said, and there's no way I was going to miss a 10-footer. Actually, Weiskopf told me a funny story that they were playing in the Ryder Cup and Weiskopf had a 10-footer for birdie and it was best ball and Jack had a 15-footer. So Tom said, do you want me to move my mark? And Jack said, no, just just pick up your mark and put it in your pocket. Rack your cue. And Weisskopf said, what are you talking <laughs> about? I have, a, I have a shorter birdie putt than than you do. And Jack said, well, there's not any possible way that I'm going to miss my putt. And Weisskopf said he knocked it in and he just couldn't believe it. So <laughs> then from 1980 until Tiger arrived in late 96, you had a revolving cast of characters. You know, you had Curtis Strange, and you had Tom Kite, and you had Nick Faldo, and you had Nick Price, and you had Greg Norman, and you had Seve Ballesteros, and you had Tom Watson, you know, and they, they sort of took turns, even though Greg was number one for 331 weeks, but he only won two major championships, so Faldo, from really 87 till Tiger arrived was, in my view, the best player because he won six majors from 87 through 96, including, of course, the one in 96 where he beat Jack at at the Masters. So then Tiger comes on the scene, and he's Jack Nicklaus. He can overpower the golf course. In the early part of his career, in his palmiest days, he was the straightest driver on tour and the longest driver on tour. And he was usually number one in greens and regulation and he was the best putter, and he was the best chipper, and he could hit it farther than anybody else. So that's a lot of advantages to have on the field. He could overpower the course, and he could overpower the other players and play better from where his drive landed because he had less club and he was better with those clubs anyway. What's happening now is a couple of things in my view. One, the equipment has become a great equalizer. The ball goes very far, and there are a great number of players who can hit the ball on occasion 350 yards. There isn't one player who is a whole bunch longer than the next group of players, like Jack was, like Jones was when he chose to be, like Tiger was. So when you have so many guys who are hitting the ball that straight and that far, nobody's overpowering the field. And they vary in how good they are from their tee ball to the green. I mean, Jordan Spieth's, you know, considered generally about the best iron player, but Dustin Johnson's become a better wedge player. But Rory's a terrible putter. So the equipment has made it very difficult to separate yourself from the field. But there's something more important than that. If the hardest thing to do in golf is to win important tournaments and major championships, almost equally as difficult is to be consistent enough to always contend. In the 1970s, Jack played in the 40 major championships. He won eight of them. That's 20%. He, fit, he finished second right. eight times. That's another 20%. So he was first or second 40% of the time. He was always, always there. And I think out of those 40, he was in the top 10 35 out of 40 times and missed one cut. That's consistency. Jordan Spieth has more missed cuts now at just under 20. And when Tiger, through 2008, had a total of five when he was thirty-two, and of course Jordan's not even twenty-five yet. So it's the yeah. inability of the best players in the world to be consistent from week to week that has them changing position all the time because nobody can keep it up. I'll give you an example of somebody who doesn't keep it up. Look at the career of Phil Mickelson. His whole career yes. has been built on two or three good weeks a year. For his whole career never won anything at the end of the year never won the money title never won the most tournaments never won stroke average (laughs) was never the player of the year it was always built on two or three good weeks a year and he won 43 times with five majors and he now goes down as one of the greatest players who ever lived particularly compiling that record in the era of tiger so consistency is the thing that would separate one of these three or four players from the other three or four players. And nobody's demonstrated an ability. Justin Thomas has done it beautifully in the last year to be there all the time. You can't win if you're not there and you need to be there all the time or close there too to be able to close out your chances because there's going to be a few guys in the field maybe that are 50th on the money list or fifth on the money list who will play the best four rounds of their life. And you're not going to win that major championship. Those things happen. That's why you get surprise winners occasionally at majors. So it's the consistency that's required to be the best player. And that's the only way you can separate yourself now because the equipment won't
1: let you do it. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, Nicholas has been very vocal about that. Uh, for, for many, many years, um, that the equipment is, uh, particularly the, the golf ball, uh, has really in a lot of ways hurt the game. Um, I want to ask you, Peter, we, we've literally, um, gosh, I hate to say this, but we're, we're almost out of time and, but I want to give you an opportunity. I was just, to talk I was just about getting locked up. Yeah, I know. Listen, Peter, I, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out there now, but I, I want to give you an opportunity first to, uh, to, uh, talk a little bit about, uh, re- about reading the break, your podcast, um, so that the audience can get a little idea for those that maybe haven't tuned into your uh, show, uh, how they can do that, but a little bit about the program.
3: Well, make that one short because it's not so interesting. I, You know, I, I, <laughs> I had a podcast that ran for a while and people weren't listening to podcasts, so I stopped doing it. And then a whole bunch of people came to me and said, oh, you got to do another podcast. And so I listened to a bunch of golf podcasts and they were all an hour and they all seemed like TV shows without a picture. And I thought – this isn't interesting, and what am I going you know, how am I gonna make mine different? Even though I had done ten years of of radio on Sirius XM, so I, you know, I understood the format. It's just just radio, and so I thought, all right, I'm not gonna do that, but what I will do is I'll do seven to ten minute podcasts, and I'll tell stories, just like the kinds of stories I've told you here tonight. And so right. I did seven podcasts. There are seven minutes, ten minutes, I think a few of the stories I've told tonight are in there and they're at my you can just see listen to them on my website, peterkessler.com, and you, you don't have to go to SoundCloud or iTunes, you just go to PeterKessler.com. dot com. But I stopped doing them because I started to write a book. And in the book I wanted to put the stories that I was using up in the podcast. And so I stopped doing podcasts, and I started writing the book and putting the things in the book that otherwise would have made its way onto the podcast. I'm also working with a group of brilliant, brilliant guys who think that we have an opportunity together to get me on camera again and do the kinds of things that I used to do. Now, every year somebody comes to me, literally every year, somebody comes to me and says, would you like to do TV again? And I always say, well, yeah, it's the only thing I know how to do. And you need two things. You need distribution, you need a channel, a network, a television station, and you need ad dollars. And every year when somebody's come to me, it's fallen through because they didn't get one or the other, or in most cases, both but some people came to me recently who have the ability to give me distribution, a place to show things, and uh, another group who's affiliated with this one who has a proven track record of raising advertising dollars before you go on the air, before you build up the audience. So I'm working with uh, an incredible group of, of, of fellas and we're in the very early stages, and uh, we might be able to create something that's very, very special that the next time we do the show together, hopefully I'll be able to talk about in greater detail. So I've, I've written the prologue, and I've written three chapters of the book, and the book just feels like the show that we've just done together. It's in my voice, right. and it's the, these stories, and it talks about exactly what we talked about tonight, how I, how I got to the Golf Channel. And Jim Dodson, who I think is the the best golf writer, I called him when I got his book from Simon & Schuster. They send me all the golf books, and I opened it up because my family's been after me for 15 years to write a book, and I keep saying I can't think of anything. And Jim Dodson's book (laughs) came, and in the prologue, it was how he went from writing for newspapers to becoming maybe the best-selling golf book writer in the world. And then the first chapter he spends with uh, a woman who was a great player in the 1920s, Glenna Colette Vare, and she's now in her 80s, but she won't talk about golf. And they go driving in the car, and she makes some pie, and they take the dog for a walk. And I thought, whoa, I can do the prologue like that, talk about how I got from nowhere to the Golf Channel. And then I can have a series of chapters of the time that I've spent with the greatest players in the world of the last century. So I called Dodson. I said, Jimmy, I just got your book. I said, I think I can write a book using your formula. And he said, of course you can. He said, you're the only living person who's interviewed everybody from the last century who played great golf or who taught great golf. And he said these stories must be told, and I'll write the foreword, and you're the only one who can write this, so get to work. And so I started to write the book, <laughs> and then I, you know, and then and and I haven't done very well on it lately because I'm working a little bit on this other project, and you know, if I have more visibility and people can see me somewhere, then it'll be easier for me to have a book that's popular because. People who don't know me will get to know me for the first time, and there may be an interest in the book. And then my fans, who have been incredibly loyal since the Golf Channel days, will 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 read the book. And so, right now, I'm um, you know it's 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 a muddle of things, but uh, it's uh, it's an interesting time, and 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 we'll see what happens with uh, this on camera stuff and the book and the podcast, which I may change to doing current events, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do.
1: Well, Peter, it sounds like you've um, got a lot of things, uh, a lot of uh, irons in the fire, if you will, and I know that every one of them are going to be successful. It's truly been an honor, Peter, to have you as my guest tonight, and for sure, uh, if you're willing, I I will definitely have you come back on. Unfortunately, we couldn't get to everything um, that I wanted to get to tonight, and I'm sure that you would like to to talk about, um, but I will gladly. Well, I get a little long-winded. Now... (laughs) I love it, though. I mean, Peter, you're a a treasure as far as I'm concerned in this business. Um as you said, you've you've interviewed so many great um not only people in the golf profession but celebrities uh, and and those alike that have somehow or other either used golf or contributed to golf or even just played golf and uh I know you have at least a million or more stories that you could share. So I will uh make you a formal uh invite here tonight on the show to come back anytime you want and we'll coordinate obviously a date that's convenient for you. But, um, thank you, Peter, for giving of your time. Um, as I said earlier, uh, I, I enjoyed listening and, and watching you on your earlier days, uh, on the golf channel, you made it an enjoyable experience for me. And, um, I thank you for that.
3: Well, let me tell you something. I, I've known about you for a while and I had a number of Uh-oh. people say to, say to me that I should do your show. And so, I listened to it a few times, and I thought, I definitely want to do that show, because this guy kind of reminds me of me a little bit, because he really does his homework. He asks great questions. He gets out of the way. He understands how it works. He's really popular. People have come to me on Facebook and Twitter and mentioned your show. And, of course, it's called Golf Talk Live, which was the name of my (laughs) show, and and I'm totally flattered by that. And so, really, for me, it's a great privilege to come on the show because you are extremely well-regarded, you are extremely well-prepared, you are elegant, and you are eloquent, and it was an absolute thrill to spend the time with you.
1: Well, I'm going to take that, uh, those accolades and run with it, Peter. Thank you very much um, for all of that. And, you know, you have truly been an inspiration, not just with your knowledge of the industry, but just how you've presented yourself over the years. And, you know, I I don't believe in copying what somebody else does, but if I can learn from that experience and somehow work it together with, with what I have to offer, um, then I, I feel like I'm, I'm going down the right path. So thank you for, for those compliments. And, and I try to do that with, with the people that uh, have been on the show, and I think that's obviously the reason they keep coming back. And I, I know if I keep mixing it up a little bit more each and, and every year, as I plan to do for next season, um, I know that they'll uh, they'll continue to uh, to follow. And um, but Peter, thank you very much for for doing this uh, show tonight. Um, it, it's been, a, as I said, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. And I will definitely have you come back anytime you want.
3: Dude, you're one of the best of the business. I'll come back anytime. You've got my number. You've got my email. You've got everyone. And you know how to get a hold of me. Send up a smoke signal. I'll be there.
1: Sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Kessler, thank you very much for being my guest.
3: My pleasure.
1: All right. Good night. All right, that was my very special guest, Peter Kessler. Unfortunately, we ran out of time for tonight, but I want to say a special thank you to all of you, the listeners out there, for faithfully tuning in each and every week here to Golf Talk Live. I'll see you next week with another great round of Coaches Corner and, of course, another insightful guest uh, here on the program. So make sure you tune in next Thursday at 6 p.m. Central right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody.